Hello and welcome to the HPP podcast. This week's episode is hosted by a guest who is part of the Health Promotion Practice Journal family. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. I'm Jill Sankey. I serve as director of the Center for Arts and Medicine at the University of Florida, and I've also had the great pleasure of serving as a co-guest editor of a special supplement of health promotion practice journal focused on the arts in public health. I've shared this journey with my colleagues Lourdes Rodriguez and Melissa Valerio Shoemaker, and we're thrilled that this special supplement will be released on May 4th. And I'm delighted to be in conversation today with four colleagues who have been contributors to this supplement. I'm with Maria Rosario Jackson from Arizona State University, Sunil Iyengar from the National Endowment for the Arts, Sandro Galea from the Boston University School of Public Health, and David Leventhal from the Dance for PD program. In this special supplement, you'll find 17 exciting articles that exemplify work happening at the intersection of the arts and public health in America. This supplement is designed to help practitioners and researchers in public health and in the arts learn about projects, strategies, and frameworks, policies, research methods, and practices that advance health through the arts and the places where the work is happening. The supplement is also designed to stimulate and inform cross-sector collaboration among public health and arts professionals. So we're hoping that this conversation today will help inspire you to enter this space at the intersection of the arts and public health. And I also want to thank the incredible partners that made this special supplement possible, Sophie, HPP, ArtPlace America, and the University of Florida Center for Arts and Medicine. Sandro, you open your piece in the supplement with the statement, the arts can and should be at the heart of the public health enterprise. I I love this statement and it's big, right? (laughs) But I wonder if you could unpack it a little bit for us to launch our conversation today. Well, first of all, thank you for having this conversation. Secondly, I think it depends on what one sees the role of public health. And I've always seen public health as being aspirational. It is really an aspiration towards collectively creating a better world that generates health. That's fundamentally what I think we should be doing in public health. So once one accepts that, if one agrees with that, the question becomes, well, how does one do that? How how do we create a better world? Well, a lot of creating a better world is creating the conversation that agrees on what a better world is. And then becomes the question, well, how does one create a conversation? And I think we create conversations collectively through art, through culture, through our collective engagement in what it is that gives our society the substrate of ideas that move us forward. And I think that's exactly what art always does, be it visual art, be it any other form of art. It is fundamentally giving us the language, the shared language that we together bring towards what we do collectively. So when I think when we see art that way, it dovetails perfectly with seeing the mission of public health as one of generating a better world. And and I think art then has a key role at the heart of what public health is trying to do. That's beautiful. Thank you. So David, I wonder if you could bring us in a little bit to help us see what 
practice looks like at the intersection of arts and public health. Could you tell us a little bit about your work with Dance for PD? Sure, Jill. I think when I think about the origins of the Dance for PD program, which started almost 20 years ago, we were coming very much from an art space, from a cultural institution, the Mark Morris Dance Group, and thinking about a way that we could engage new communities in the art forms of dance and music. When we started, we really were not thinking about this particular activity or program as a public health program. For us, it was an arts engagement program. It was a way of building our community. It was a way of introducing people to dance who had never danced before. And maybe because they were living with Parkinson's disease, thought that dance was off limits to them. One of our missions and goals from the beginning has been around inclusion and accessibility and coming in with this thought that anybody can dance, that dance is not off limits to any population, to any body, to anyone living with uh, chronic challenges. And in fact, what we found from the very beginning was that dance had a very special role to play in the lives of people with Parkinson's. We thought that at the very least, the experience of coming together to dance would be a social experience, would provide a sense of community and a sense of belonging. What we didn't know, uh, we had a hunch about, but we didn't know that the thought process that dancers go through as movement artists, thinking about movement, practicing movement, performing movement as creative beings, that those skills and that development would be so attuned to what people living with Parkinson's wanted and needed to address. So I often talk about the program as a kind of a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it has nothing to do with Parkinson's. It's a, an experience for people living with a chronic challenge to, to be artists, to think creatively about their experience, to tell stories through their bodies, uh, to, uh, to build a community of, of people who are there to find meaning and purpose in what they're doing and how they're spending their time. But the other side is that everything we do in class has a specific connection to a symptom of Parkinson's and, and in that way, other neurological conditions. So things like balance, cognition, uh, coordination, things like facial expression or sense of confidence or self-efficacy, uh, rhythm, all of these elements that dancers take for granted in their practice they have a very direct uh, connection to an impact on uh, many of the symptoms that people are living with. So I often say, Jill, if you were to sit in a lab and concoct a movement intervention for people living with Parkinson's, it would end up looking a lot like dance. And since we all have dance already in our lives, in our cultures, um, it is, it is incumbent upon us to, to lean on those dance resources, to find dancers in our community 
and and bring them into this conversation with with people with Parkinson's. And that's really been the goal of the program from from the start. I love that, David. I love the organicness of this, the fit, the natural fit that dance has in relation to the goals that people with Parkinson's disease have. And I love that you came to it as an artist, but now you find yourself delivering one of the most impactful large-scale public health interventions um, in the world. Your, your program is now all over the world. Um, how many countries? Dance for PD has partners in 25 countries, uh, about to be 26. We're doing another a training in Poland coming up. And, and that, that has been uh, another surprise to us because again, when we started, we thought this is a program that is designed for a particular constituency in Brooklyn, at this place, in this niche. And what we soon discovered is that this program uh, can be transposed and translated uh, into many regions and many communities. And I think one of the things that's enabled that to happen is our belief that there isn't one way of dancing or type of dance that is particularly beneficial. There are elements of dance uh, of, of, in all styles, in all techniques, in all cultures that form the basis of what I would call a DNA of what is useful for people with Parkinson's, what is supportive to them. Those things operate on both the motor level, things like weight shift, locomotion, balance, very specific things like bending the knees and how we integrate and think about using the floor to support our movement. You'll find those elements of DNA in every dance form around the world. And then the other side is that sense of community, that sense of expression, that sense of belonging to an artistic group. And that happens in dancing communities around the world. We felt very strongly from the beginning that the program needs to be able to be built on local dance forms, local cultures, local dance languages. It is not imposed from what we happen to have been doing in Brooklyn, uh, which is one set of styles, but rather it is more about an approach and a philosophy to sharing dance with communities. The content itself is developed from those communities themselves. And that's, that's what has enabled this program, I think, to grow roots all over the world because it is adaptable. It is uh, it really comes from the community and we are there to nurture it and to water it and to help it grow. That's beautiful. And in your article in the HPP supplement on arts and public health, you talk about how the program has translated not only across cultures as you've described today, but how it's translated across formats and how you adapted to COVID-19. Would you say a few words about, about how you've done that? Yes, I think one of the surprises of this period has been how well an in-person, in-studio, live dance program has translated to an online environment. We've been surprised. I think we were hesitant at the beginning. We weren't sure how our communities would respond. Not everyone in the community has been able to get online or has been comfortable, but the vast majority of people are participating in classes on Zoom. They are dancing three to four times a week, whereas before they might have been able to come to the studio once. So we've seen greater frequency. We've seen a level of engagement 
from people around the world in our program and in other programs that are online that matches what's been going on in the studio. So we have been really pleasantly surprised and in many ways coming online with our with the dance program has had some surprise benefits. One of them I think is accessibility. So for someone living with Parkinson's to not have to get out of the house, to not have to try to get across town or in a bus or in a car, or wherever they're going, to struggle with those logistics and to just be able to, in their living room, turn on this creative artistic experience is very helpful for people. It, it is removing a barrier for them. As well, I think there's an element of privacy. Some people are not public about their Parkinson's. They don't feel comfortable being in a group yet. And so to be able to do a class and experience at home where they can be anonymous, they can actually turn off their cameras and participate as a, as a way to start the program has been, has been really helpful. The online experience has also helped us diversify not only the communities that we're reaching, but the languages that we're speaking. We've uh, partnered with the Muhammad Ali Parkinson Center in Phoenix, Arizona, to start a class that is offered exclusively in Spanish. And we have been inviting Spanish speakers, not just from the US, but from eight other countries to join that class and participate. And what's really important about that class is it's not just about the language, it's also about culture. It's about the music that's selected. It's about the teachers who are sharing their cultural backgrounds with those communities. And that's something that we had been working on doing in New York, but for some reason, trying to do that in person was proving more difficult than it was to simply say, hey, we're offering this online class in Spanish. Whoever's out there, come join us. And we had 100 people, more than 100 people for the first class. So it's really been a reminder to us of the, the power of this kind of platform. And we will be continuing to be sharing experiences on this platform, even after we go back in person. So great. I love that. And so for me, that connects to a, a piece that Maria, in your beautiful essay, you share a personal perspective related to the powers of the arts and culture. And I wonder if you could maybe read that section or tell us about that section and elaborate a bit. Sure, I would be happy to. So it starts, as the daughter of an African-American man and a Mexican immigrant woman, I watched my parents resort to the arts and to the particular expressions of their respective cultures because they feared that without intentional exposure to black and brown people who could express their fullest humanity, my brother and I might actually believe the narratives that they were sure we were confronting daily. From an early age, I knew that the art and culture of the people who came before me had everything to do with their resilience, their integrity, and their survival. I knew that artists and culture bearers, people who steward cultural practices and history and pass them on from one generation to the next. I knew that they could help us question the world, explain our conditions and look at things in new ways. They could help us make sense of the world, dream, imagine, celebrate, mourn and transform. I also understood that the imposition of culture and art through forced assimilation and cultural erasure with intentions to oppress was a powerful tactic. So if we know that art and cultural practices and that artists and culture bearers are so important that they have to be controlled or removed and replaced in efforts to oppress, why have we not thought of them as core to strengthening, empowering, and liberating? 
That is so beautiful and powerful. And it, it really, it touches on some elements that I think are really critical to this intersection of arts and public health that we see emerging in so many areas today. And I love, Maria, that you talk about the sort of ways in which the arts have power in manifesting positive things and also, you know, more negative things. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about, I'd love for you to hear more about each of those, but I'd love for you also to help us think a little bit more deeply about how that power can be harnessed in relation to health and population level health in particular. Yeah, you know, I think that not looking at the cultural and aesthetic expressions of people is a really important gap in trying to fully understand who you're dealing with, what their history is, what their aspirations and what their pains are. And I don't mean only physical pains, but you know, our full selves, right? And, and that is in the work that I've done for some decades now. Now I've always talked about it as the integration of arts and culture in in comprehensive community development. But if you boil it down to the essence, it really is about restoring humanity and healing. And it is about understanding how people move through their lives and in the world, not just individually, but collectively and generationally. And I think that if we don't pay attention to those cultural expressions, we won't get it. We just won't get it. And we won't be able to do our best work, whether we're in the public health field or the community development field or whatever field it is that has called us to help create places where people can thrive. We just can't do our best work if we don't pay attention to that. Right, absolutely. And you go on in your piece, to call for repair, which I think is a really powerful part of your piece. And you talk in that section about cultural kitchens and how they can cultivate preconditions for long-term changes that we need today. Can you tell us a little bit about that idea of cultural kitchens? Yeah, the idea of cultural kitchens, you know, it came out of many years ago, I was asked to do a, a book chapter in a book about race and cities, really. And there were sections on everything that you might imagine, housing, environment, et cetera. There was only one section on, on arts and culture, and, and I wrote it. And it occurred to me that politicians and people whose official charge it is to steward a place often brag about the diversity of a place. And they do so by lifting up where we all come together and celebrate that, you know, some cultural commons or a communal table or something like that. And that is touted often as a virtue of a city. And there are even, I think, quality of life claims that come with living in diverse places and the benefits of them. And perhaps even in, in thinking about public health as we continue to evolve our understanding of environmental impacts on public health outcomes the notion of living in diverse places may, may come up. And it occurs to me that I'm a planner, 
as, as people in urban planning and in community development think about cities and we celebrate the places where all of this can come together in some kind of harmony and we're able to have these cultural exchanges that we don't really pay attention to what it takes to have that. And we celebrate the table, but we don't pay attention to the kitchens where whatever it is that we bring must be prepared. And it occurs to me that if we don't have kitchens, we can't participate really. We can't authentically deliver the gift, the thing that we want to share, that we should be sharing. We don't have the mechanism or the means to do that. So I think that healthy places have these cultural kitchens, these places where particularly for groups that, that come out of experience of historic marginalization, these places of repair, where you go to tend to the violence that is often done to a cultural root, when your language is stripped away or you're discouraged from expressing yourself in, in ways that have generational significance for you. So when these places exist, these cultural kitchens, so the, they are places of reclamation as much as they are places of imagination. But it is these, these bold and safe spaces that are not always porous, open to everyone, but they're necessary. And if we really are going to have this diversity that we say we value, this table that we're all supposed to come to, we have to think about where, where does that culture get made? Where, where do people reckon with who it is that they want to be in this communal space and what it is that they have to deliver? And as you're talking, Maria, that's so, it's so beautiful. I love that idea so much. And I, I think about how public health as a sector engages with communities and some of the issues in that, the ways that when we do research in communities, we can extract knowledge and resources in ways that don't benefit those communities. And this notion of cultural kitchens, I mean, there's such richness there in terms of understanding communities and cultures and issues, and also just an extraordinary potential for change-making, for greater learning, awareness, and change-making. How do you imagine that public health professionals could interact in those sorts of spaces in ways that are ethical and equitable? Oh, that's a great question. I think they really are places of healing. They're places of healing and repair. And they are often intimate spaces, as I said before, that aren't always porous. So developing the genuine relationships and trust that allow invitation into those spaces seems really important. And there's no add water and stir way of creating the kinds of relationships that I think are the most powerful. Jill, the, the kind of relationships that would invite people who are in the health field into dialogue or into conversation 
with folks that care about well-being. So I think that there's the, the you know the, the the care to not be extractive, the care to come in respectful, and recognizing that there are multiple worldviews, that there are different ways of seeing something, and that there's actually something generative in negotiating those different ways of seeing. I think that's the kind of skill set that I wonder about not just even in the public health field, but how we're training next generation of professionals in, in the various fields that converge potentially. You know, are we equipping them to enter into spaces and be respectful and even curious about multiple worldviews? Because I think for the best work to happen in public health and other fields, that has to be part of the equation. Yeah, and I'm reminded, Maria, of a conversation that we had about a year ago in Kentucky and a notion that arose from that conversation that change happens at the speed of trust and that the arts provide spaces in which trust can be built and that time can be spent, right, that can build that kind of trust for the sort of interaction that I think public health professionals really seek to have with communities to develop understanding and, and to begin to, to help. And especially in the space of research where, where trust is so essential and so much change needs to happen today. So Sunil, I wanna bring you into this conversation since we're talking about research and that is very much your domain. You and the NEA are behind one of the magnificent articles in this supplement. And I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that article. Your study suggests that the arts can be useful in relation to pain management and opioid use disorders, which are really significant issues today. So would you talk a little bit about how the arts can be useful in those issues? Yeah, absolutely, Jill. And I was very taken to hear what you just said about trust building, because I think that's where I think the arts and uh, public health certainly can find common cause. There's a great need, certainly within the arts community, and as we know, of course, through public health, to win the trust of community stakeholders or people in communities one-on-one and to really understand, in the case of arts, for example, what kinds of art making, what kinds of arts opportunities really resonate with community members and to to honor and build upon work that we might consider sort of organically created in these communities by the communities themselves. And I think at a time of COVID especially, there's been a lot more of a need for arts organizations to dig down into their communities and engage with them, partly because they're not going to see as many people coming from other places because of travel restrictions and, you know, kind of the the public health situation right now. So they've become more, I think, attentive in many ways to community members and the needs of those communities, urban and rural. And I said this as kind of an elaborate preface to to answer your question, because I think one of the things we learned in this article you're referring to was written by Julie Lease and Colleen Morrison, based on a study they did for the National Endowment for the Arts on arts-based strategies to combat the opioids problem. And the research was initiated well before the pandemic. But I think there's a lesson here because what they found, first of all, just in terms of treating opioids head on, they looked at all the various art forms through literature review and interviews, program scan essentially, 
of what kinds of arts interventions seemed to work best when it came to treating substance abuse disorders and pain management, those two kinds of legs of the stool, if you will, in terms of the opioids problem. And they found that music in particular was shown to reduce pain and consumption of pain medication considerably across many, many studies and have a significant positive effect on those outcomes. It was also shown to improve readiness and motivation for treatment, for substance abuse disorder treatment, and, and to re reduce craving. And they also found, and this is where it kind of ties us back to the situation we're in with the pandemic and what we were just talking about in terms of trust, arts-based programs addressed social aspects of substance abuse disorders, improving community awareness of substance abuse disorders, and reducing stigma to promote resilience and recovery. And that's very important because apart from, you know, the direct therapeutic outcomes that we found with, say, music in particular, when applied to pain management or applied to substance abuse disorders, like addictions, we found that, you know, it was really a tool and, and was helping to kind of increase awareness and boost and really and alleviate stigma, as I'm saying. And so if the arts truly can be a way of destigmatizing traumas such as substance abuse disorders, and let's extend that to the post-pandemic world, social scarring and a lot of social isolation related to the fallout of the pandemic. I think, I think we have, again, another way in which the arts can truly be integrated in public health strategies for the greater good. I think that a lot of times we forget that, you know, what is the mechanism of action here? How is it that these outcomes are being realized? Well, it's really because the arts are promoting voice, agency, comprehensive engagement, recognition, and reclamation in the ways that Maria was talking about. And I think, I think the arts and opioids issue is one kind of shining example of that. Beautiful, Sunil. Thank you so much. And David, I've got two bubbling questions for you after listening to Sunil. One is, what are the research findings related to dancing and Parkinson's disease? Are you seeing any outcomes related to things like pain? It's a great question, Jill. The research literature on dance and Parkinson's is quite robust at this point. There are more than 42 published studies on the impact of dance and Parkinson's. Most of those right now are preliminary or small scale in terms of small cohort size. But what those do is they point us in the directions of where we need to go next. So we need to look at larger cohorts. We need to look at more research on the mechanisms of what's actually causing the impacts. But when we start to look at the list of outcomes and impacts, we see things on both sides of the spectrum in terms of sort of motor physical things and also non-motor quality of life. So on the motor side, we're seeing improvements in balance, gait, uh, reduction of tremor, functional mobility, those areas. On the non-motor side, which for me is a, is a huge forest of interesting responses and particularly coming from the artist's perspective, things like confidence, self-esteem, self-efficacy, sense of worth, sense of social inclusion and connection, mood. These are things that point to the impact of a dance program, not just on somebody's physical well-being, but on their state of mind, on their sense of well-being within a community, their sense of 
self-esteem that can then give them confidence to do other things. In many ways, we've seen dance actually be the gateway experience for other artistic endeavors and for other community endeavors. People gain confidence in dance and what we're seeing in the research is that then leads to participating in, in singing classes and other physical activities because they've gained confidence within the safe artistic space. So the research is incredibly positive and we need more of it. We need bigger sizes because that's what neurologists and physicians are going to be looking for. And in the interest of funding, we need to look at evidence that points to activities like dancing, actually reducing costs on the healthcare system. That to me is one of the avenues to sustain funding for arts and health endeavors, because if we can say that participating in a dance class once or twice a week actually can reduce fall risk and reduce hospitalization, then we're really looking at a very specific reason why we should be funding arts and health programs in general. So the research is very good. We use it in our practice in terms of understanding what elements we want to include, but we want to have more of it. And we really want to understand the mechanisms. Why, why do these interventions seem to be so effective for people with Parkinson's, for people with MS, for people with dementia? And as we are confronted with an exponential increase in an aging population and people living with these neurodegenerative conditions, we, we really need to understand why the arts work, not so that we're changing our practice per se. Artists are going to be artists and we'll continue to do what we do, but it's very helpful when we're contending with issues like funding and sustainability and structure to be able to work with our colleagues in the medical world, in the scientific world to sustain what we're doing. So I love it. You touched on my second question that had bubbled up and that is mechanisms. What do you think it is about the arts that can do these things? It's such an important question. I think one of the things that makes it difficult to answer that question is that the arts work on so many levels. They are multifocal. As Maria and Sunil are both saying, it's not just one element that we're working on in terms of a specific therapy targeted to one specific behavior or motor skill. It's all of the above. And that is one of the things that makes mechanisms so difficult to study in the arts, because if you were to parse out one element and really look at that element, well, the intervention would no longer be recognizable as dance or as music or as, you know, it would no longer be a kitchen providing delicious, nutritious meals. It would be a vending machine. And so we want to avoid the vending machine approach to arts and health, we always want to go back to that cultural kitchen because the kitchen has hundreds of ingredients and we're drawing from those to create a stew. So if I were to answer very briefly, what is the mechanism? I would say for our participants, it is about a conscious, mindful awareness of expression and connection. And when we think about expressing ourselves through our bodies, and when we think about connecting with others, there are a whole lot of other mechanisms that start to kick in to support that because those two elements, expression and connection, are what make us human. So if we can understand the neuroscience of that, then we will understand what it is about dance, which is all about expression and connection, that makes it work for so many populations. And if I could chip in here, Jill, that was great, David. I was thinking that 
just to extend the analogy or maybe to overwork it, you know, from cultural kitchens, you know, really the recipes of these interventions and these are being looked at very seriously by the National Institutes of Health. So right now, um, in partnership with them, we're doing a lot of work to support, particularly around music and health. And we're just hoping this is the first wave. We'd love to do more, of course. And I know that dance and movement is an area that, that dramatically needs this kind of research support. And I think has a lot of justification and certainly other forms of not only arts therapies, but arts-based interventions. So to get back to this recipe idea, they are, if you, if you know anything about National Institutes of Health, you probably know they're very mechanism-oriented, mechanistic, if you will. The biomedical and behavioral markers of interventions is something they're very keen on, on understanding and replicating. And that's very hard and it poses a challenge. I just referred to the arts and opioid studies. Well, if you looked across the literature, it was very hard to identify standard outcomes, standard sort of ingredients, again, of, of these interventions that could be repeated and replicated, partly because of the small sample sizes in some of these studies, but also because it wasn't always clear in the research literature whether these were, say, creative arts therapies, like music-based therapies, therapeutic interventions, or music and health kinds of programs where they're integrated at different levels. And so without that standardization, it becomes very difficult to scale research. That doesn't mean that the interventions shouldn't occur and that there can't be the team learning and the practitioner learning that is so necessary and it always occurs in public health, evidence-based practice. But I think to get the large funders of biomedical and behavioral research like NIH to go after supporting these interventions, they really do need to understand the recipes. So what they're doing now is they're doing a series of webinars this summer, started actually last month, I believe, and I got to participate in one, and it was about understanding the building blocks of music-based interventions so that NIH can ultimately create a toolkit with uh, particular outcome measures describing the kinds of interventions that seem to align with particular outcomes when it comes to neuroscientific outcomes particularly. And that's just one way of looking at it. I mean, I, it's not a one-size-fits-all model, but I think they are trying to understand at least how they can support particularly research around neuroscience and music that strand, and, and try to give guidance as to elements of programs and interventions that might be standardized for the purpose of these studies. You know, listening to David and to Sunil reminds me of a point that I was trying to at least introduce in the article, in the volume, and it has to do with our appetite for stretching beyond what we typically understand as rigor, what we understand as the appointed best way of doing research and doing evaluation. And when you have a confluence of fields, there's gotta be some give and there's gotta be a willingness to unsettle our orthodoxies about how we've always done things and what counts and how we count. So I think about, you know, David taking the, the cultural kitchens metaphor further and, and saying, you know, we want kitchens, not vending machines. And it's an important idea. And the notion of disaggregating, which makes a lot of sense in order to understand how something really works. But the disaggregating sometimes loses the focus on the alchemy that is the thing, right? That's the thing. 
And if we keep taking it apart and not putting it back together without fully understanding what happens when you put it back together, we missed it. And we missed the texture of, right, the sort of deep description of what the intervention is or the program or whatever you want to call it. You know, Maria, we've talked about this before, but you've helped me understand better, I think, about the what of the research question. Like, what is the program? What does it look like? What's the sort of descriptive factors, you know, and I'm not, I'm not doing it justice, but I know you've talked about this sort of indications versus indicators even, you know, and that sort of, and I think we, we do need to understand that. And one thing I know we haven't done enough of in the research community in the arts, I would say, certainly in public level is to bring the beneficiaries of these programs to the table in helping to design these research studies, community-based participatory research. And I know that's something that is a strong suit in public health, which we could certainly apply more to research about the arts. And I've seen you do it, Maria. Thank you for saying that, Sunil. And I do think we push towards mixed methods and tend to stop at qualitative and quantitative, but still with a fairly rigid social science interpretation of what that means. And one of the things that I've been advocating for a while is how do we move beyond that and also integrate humanities and arts-based ways of knowing? Because I do think that there is the question of the why, you know, the meaning behind the dance or the meaning behind whatever the aesthetic activity is, if we don't understand that, again, we're missing the point and we won't do our best work. Again, the plea is to have some flexibility as we see the opportunity for generative convergence, to not get so stuck and rooted in the way we've always done things to miss the opportunity to really do something transformative. Sandra, this reminds me of when in your article, you said public health is a collective act. Do you think that this notion of cultural kitchens or artists or the arts sector can help drive the kind of collective action that we need right now to move the needle on some of the critical public health issues that we're facing? I'm thinking specifically of things like racism and COVID-19. One of my favorite definitions of public health comes from a National Academies report, which says public health is what we do collectively to create a healthier world. And I think that is abundantly true. Public health is not about what I do by myself, what you do by yourself. It's what we do together because public health is in for large scale change and large scale change is never the product of any one person. So when you understand that, I think this idea that ultimately we are all in shared cultural kitchens where we are trying to create uh, better product dovetails very nicely with, with this notion. I often, when I talk to our students, say that the wonderful thing about public health is that it can achieve real change, big change. It can achieve change on a large scale. At the individual level, the individual has to recognize that their role is always going to be small. Any of us, our role is always small when we're doing something big together. But when we do it together, the end product is well worth it because then the end product is moving the world to a better place. So you asked about issues like racism, for example, and we all know that racism is deeply embedded, has been so for centuries, and that ultimately it exists at multiple levels. There's the individual, the easy to see inter-individual racism, and then the harder to see 
deep levels of structural racism that permeate all our policy levels and where we live and where we play and all that. Well, how do those change? Well, those change through a recognition of these forces, through a conversation shifting that says, we should be designing a world that is not inhibiting anybody based on their race or their ethnicity or really any other form of identity from engaging with the world around them to the fullest of their capacity to be able to reach their potential. That requires a broad-based cultural acceptance that that is our shared goal. And how do we achieve that? We achieve that by having a conversation, by engaging all the ways in which we generate our collective conversation with the arts being right in the middle of that. Yeah, I think similarly, we talk about the potential of the arts to make change because artists are and always have been agents of tremendous social change. They engage us in these dialogues and they can help us consider new perspectives. Thank you so much. Thank you all for bringing such incredible insights to this dialogue. I think one thing that we're hoping that this special supplement will accomplish is to drive more of these kinds of dialogues. I think you're all doing such a beautiful job of articulating the powers of these domains of arts and humanities and culture and public health. And I think what we recognize in putting this supplement together is what we're currently missing is the combined powers, the strength of their combined powers. So we're really, really eager to drive more of these conversations. And I just can't thank you enough for all of your insights and for the generosity of your time today. It's been such a pleasure talking with you all. Thank you. Thank you, Jill, for having the conversation. It was great. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Jill. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to this week's episode from the HPP podcast. If you enjoyed this content, let us know. You can find more from us on our website, social media, Sophie, and Sage. And you can find all of these links in the podcast description. Take care.